Welcome. You're listening to The Aligned Self, conversations in creating a conscious and abundant life. This is Daniel DeNovi. I'll be your guide and host. Let's see just where we can take this. Hello, friend, and welcome back to The Conversation. Today I'm going to talk about the seven things that I implemented in my life, the things that I first implemented in my life once I decided to take control of my vibration, to take control of my emotional mastery. Now, when I first started this, we didn't call it vibration. We called it mastering your emotions. You see, in my teen years, I was an athlete. I was involved in school athletics, in track and basketball. And I really wanted to tap into that peak performance state commonly known as the zone. Now, if you're not familiar with the zone, and I get that a lot of people don't have a firsthand experience with it, but it's that that pointed attention where you have a focused attention that's not forced. You're just immersed in the current moment. And it's as if your unconscious speaks through you and you're not you know, there's no paralysis by analysis. You're not overthinking it. You're just responding to the events at hand. And that's typically when peak performance comes to bear and you have access to not only your creative abilities, but you have access to your greater mind, your other than conscious mind. Now, being in the zone is also referred to as being in the flow state. But as I began to think about all this, it really came down to emotional mastery. How do you begin focusing your mind in a way to access these higher states of being, these altered states of being? Now, before I wade deep into this topic and really talk about the seven seven things that I implemented, I need to tell you how this came about, how I decided to have this be the topic of this episode. I was talking with my wife, and she asked me how the course was going, the high vibe life. And I got this smile of deep satisfaction on my face. And then I just burst. I said, I'm so excited about it. It's so amazing. It's going to be phenomenal. You know, I can't wait to present this to the people that have signed up. Boy, are they going to be blown away. They have no idea what's available to them. And I just went on and on. And she said to me, I've never seen you this excited, or I haven't seen you this excited in a long time. And I said, I I get that, because I've been getting up, and I'm like excited, really excited to get up and get at the day, you know, talk more about the course and, and flesh more of it out. And I told her, I'm putting all these things together. I'm putting in all my experience in walking on fire and accessing those high-performance mind-body states. I'm utilizing things that I've learned in neuroscience, in NLP, and I'm putting them all together in a way that I haven't really seen this out in the marketplace. It's something fresh and something new. You know, a lot of people talk about raising your vibration, but they don't really tell you how. And this is where Kimberly asked me the question. She asked me, so how did you start taking control of your vibration? And I said, well, I never really called it my vibration back then. I called it emotional master. I called it trying to get in the zone. She said, it doesn't matter what you call it. This is where the curse of knowledge comes in. You've been doing this for a long time. You need to think back to when you first got started taking control of your emotions, first began taking control of your peak performance state. Because if you can go back there, maybe you'll say something, talk about something that at your current level of knowing, my current course of knowledge, because I'm in the knowing, I've known this and been doing it for a long time, 
And after we reach a point of being an expert, we actually forget what it was like when we were first starting out. What were the pitfalls? What were the stumbling blocks? What were the first realizations? When we have a body of knowing, a body of knowledge in expertise, then we have gotten a lot of those early steps along the way. So if I go back to the beginning, she said, perhaps I'll rediscover what the steps were to begin unfolding or taking control of your vibration. I said, that's a good idea. And so here we are. I think every journey has an origin point, an origin moment. And if I think back on it, it was when I encountered a couple quotes from Helen Keller. Now, if you don't know who Helen Keller is, you need to investigate more. She was born in 1880 and lived to the late 60s, I think 1968. And her story is that when she was a baby, she contracted an illness that left her blind, deaf, and mute. And the story of her life is one of inspiration. That whole journey of coming out of darkness to be a predominant voice, an activist for disability rights, for women's suffrage rights. Through her caretaker and teacher and friend, Annie Sullivan, she became a speaker. She spoke through Annie through signing. She wrote books. Talk about someone creating the life they want and overcoming perceived limitations. She pushed the boundaries of what was possible. She has continually inspired me. Now, I was only eight years old when she died, but her life is a legacy. When I was first introduced to these quotes from Kellen Keller, I think I was 12 years old. But I remember distinctly the feeling that I had after reading these quotes. The first is that security does not exist in nature, nor do children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. The other was a story she recounted when she was staying with some friends. They mentioned that they were going to go for a walk, and they were gone for an hour, walking in the park and walking around the neighborhood. And when they got back, she asked them, through Annie Sullivan, she asked them, what did you see? What did you hear? And they said, not too much, just the ordinary stuff. It was just a walk. And she was beside herself and asked, how can anyone look but not see? How can they listen but not hear? She went on to ask, how can people that have access to the gifts of sight, the gifts of hearing, not use them, not immerse themselves in the full experience of life? And then the next quote that I internalized that I got from Henry David Thoreau after my English teacher, in response to a creative writing assignment, said, very Thoreau-like, your grammar sucks. And I said, who's Thoreau? And she said, you better find out. And so when I looked him up, I came across this quote, and it has been with me ever since. I've actually mentioned this before in a previous episode. And his quote is this, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and to see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life, living so dear. So did I wish to practice resignation, unless it was quite necessary? I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, 
to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. There's two ideas in that quote that really touched me. One is to live deliberately. The other was to suck the marrow out of life. But the metaphor is to get in touch with the essential qualities of life. And this goes round back to Helen Keller when she said, how can people look but not see? How can they listen but not hear? So it's getting in touch with the the essential nuances and qualities of being alive. And so my first step in taking control of my vibration was to make the decision to live a life that was an adventure. And so at that age of 12, 13, I began framing everything in the terms of an adventure, an exciting discovery. And one of the frontiers that was largely undiscovered, and which is still largely undiscovered, there's a lot to learn, there's a lot that we've learned over the years, and that is the arena of the mind, mind mastery. It was then that I became interested in hypnosis, and I sent away for a mail-order book, and I began studying the principles of hypnosis, the phenomena of hypnosis. And I'm the oldest of four boys, the oldest of five, and my brothers didn't really want anything to do with me. And as a consequence, when I attempted to work with them in hypnosis, they did nothing but laugh at me. And so I began focusing on myself, and this is where step number two, I became immersed in my inner world. I began meditating. At the time, I didn't know I was meditating. I was doing self-hypnosis. I would spend minutes, many minutes, sometimes hours, investigating this inner world, just seeing just how deeply relaxed I could get my body, just how deeply entranced could I go. I didn't really call it meditation then. Meditation was still a relatively new concept. It was something that was at the purview of hippies. The Beatles had brought over the Maharishi, who taught transcendental meditation. There was a lot of fear that this whole meditation thing was tied into cults and all that other stuff, because it was so foreign from the Western mind. Now it's somewhat commonplace. So step number two, aside from deciding that I was going to take control of my emotional life, my emotional mastery, and engage in the adventure... The step number two was to immerse myself in inner space, to meditate. And today, after thousands of studies on the meditative practices and how it impacts the brain, they found that it actually rewires your nervous system. It rewires your brain to where you can exercise greater and greater control over your emotional state just through will alone, just through your focus. And I have to tell you, if there's only one thing on this list that you immerse yourself in, that would be meditation. There's no greater activity. There's no more profound thing that you can do or engage in to take control of your emotions and your mind. Number three, when I was 17, I was introduced to Robert Schuller. He was a minister in California and had a television program called The Hour of Power. And he was a possibility thinker. So I was introduced to the concept of being a possibility thinker, which is different than a positive thinker. It's pretty close, but when you're in possibility, every thought that you have is how do you expand the current situation? You think in possibility. Well, that began to really orient my mind in a new way. And then when I was 19, I had a sales position with a vacuum cleaner company. And I was introduced to the book, See You at the Top by Zig Ziglar. Zig was a sales trainer and a motivational speaker, and he had this concept called Feed Your Attitude. 
He said, have you ever noticed a man when he's missed lunch or missed breakfast, he'll be talking to you and said, you know, I've missed lunch. I didn't even eat today. And Zig would say, we're so conscious of when we miss a meal, yet how conscious are we when we fail to feed our attitude? And so this practice of feeding your attitude is to digest something every day, to read a half an hour every morning, and this is the practice I put in place, to read something positive, uplifting, enthusiastic, something that was inspiring every morning. And the mindset behind this was Zig had read something to the fact that by age five, a child has heard the word no 60,000 times. And he, you just think of people dumping in no and criticism over and over and over again into your bucket. And he wanted to reverse the trend because he knew that it would just continue on into adulthood until you die. You have the news, you have the government, you have all kinds of people and in circumstances dumping negative thinking into your bucket. And so imagine if you have a bucket full of negatives and you begin pouring in positive aspects every day. Sooner or later, you're going to start displacing. If you've ever seen yourself step into a bathtub and the water rises, that's the law of impenetrability. So when you put something in, something has to come out. So you start dumping in on a regular basis. You start feeding your attitude, positive aspects, inspirational stories, anything that makes you feel good after you read it. And so over time, as you dump positive aspects in your bucket, they start displacing the negatives until you sooner or later, you have a bucket full of positives. And so if someone dumps a few little negatives in your bucket, they drown in the sea of possibility. So you have a built-in response, a built-in defense against stinking thinking, as Zig would call it, or hardening of the attitudes. So number five came into my life, came into being in my experience when I was 27 years old. Again, I'm operating from the context that life is an adventure, that I want to suck the morrow out of life to live deliberately. But I I came to the realization that something was missing. I, I wasn't making progress the way I wanted. And so as a consequence, I was introduced to the work of Charles Hobbs. Charles Hobbs was a time management expert at the time, and he had this philosophy of identifying your guiding principles those principles that unify your being, that you can organize your life around. Now, some people refer to these as values, but the idea really goes much deeper. And so when I put myself through this process, the power of the, of knowing this, of, gui- of organizing your life around this is profound. And as a consequence, it's become a very integral part in my signature coaching program, The Aligned Self, where you get to recreate your identity, actually bring your behavior, bring your thinking in alignment with who you truly want to be, your most authentic expression of yourself. But here I am, age 27, identifying you know those principles that are most important, most critical for me to live the life that I want to live, and I chose to make love the most important priority in my life. You see, most people have a convoluted idea, convoluted concept of love. It's usually in response to conditions. If you do this, then you'll receive love from me. I was coming from the context of unconditional love. In fact, my definition today is that love is unconditional. 
if love is conditional, it's something else. It's some exercise of the ego, some mechanism that you have in place in order to get something from somebody else. Love is unconditional. It is provided unconditionally. And so part of this process in identifying your unifying principles is to create a definition, a working definition that you can implement into your life. So I began to read all about love, different aspects of love. How can love be expressed? And there's like 13 virtues of love, 13 characteristics that people deem as loving. And that's probably an important distinction that I need to bring out here that love is not a thing, but it is a verb, a word you live. So you can be loving. And from the context of beingness, I wanted to be the embodiment of love. When I walked in the room, I wanted love to be present. I wanted it to be the expression of who I was. And so I made love a priority. I began organizing my life around love, my expression in love. And through that, I embodied the attitude that I got from Dale Carnegie in How to Win Friends and Influence People, that people really aren't around you because of how amazing you are. They're around you because of how amazing they feel when they're with you. Now, when we talk about love, there's three dimensions to the expression of love. There's self-love. There's familial love, which is also includes your friends, which is, you know, a created family. And then there's humanity at large. And one could take a look at everything that I do and see where it fits in, which category it fits in, in my definition of love. This podcast is my love of humanity. I put this together three to four times a week in order to make a difference for you, to make a difference for those around you to provide and share ideas that made a difference for me. But the thing that really made a difference for me is when I began investing myself in loving myself. Now, a lot of people say, I don't love myself. And I'm like, why? I mean, you're the only one you're with 24-7, 365. I mean, you have access to your thoughts. You have access to every aspect of your life. Why wouldn't you be loving to yourself? Because it's within your control. And they're like, well, I really don't like who I am. How could you not? I mean, you have autonomy. You can decide how you want to be, who you want to be. You have the ultimate adventure. The epic adventure is to actually decide who you want to be and implement and attract the skills, the skill set, the learnings to develop yourself. You, you're like a blank canvas filled with possibility. What's not to love? But I get it. When I was 27, I realized that I had spent the majority of my life acquiescing my desires, my wants and needs to actually satisfy the wants and needs of others, to try and fit into their agenda so I would be liked, so I would be accepted. Because I thought if other people accepted me, then that meant I was lovable. And so my behavior became somewhat chameleon-like up until this point in time, where I was changing my behavior in order to fit what other people thought or what I thought other people wanted. And I was losing myself. I was not authentic. And I'm going to do a whole episode on this because it is very prevalent in our culture in the world. But understand that this point of view is sourced from the idea that love is conditional. So if you meet other people's conditions, then they'll love you. And then you start adapting your behavior in order to fit into other people's expectations. And you do lose yourself. You're not authentic. 
And today I feel that I need to be authentic. In fact, if I'm not authentic, then I'm manipulating you in some way. And if I can't be authentic in your presence, then I should probably not be in your presence. And if you don't like me because I don't fit into your paradigm, your perspective, what is appropriate, and perhaps you can tune into a different channel. If there's any benefit to getting older is coming to the realization that life is too short to give it up to fit into somebody else's idea of what is right. But I want to circle back before I lose this thought in this tirade here. When I began loving myself, I elevated my happiness to a point that it was a priority. And so my vibration, my emotional mastery became an expression of my self-love. And I guess before I go on to the next step, there's one more thing I want to say about self-love. And that's typically the critical voice that a lot of people have about their behavior. Now, when people say they don't love themselves or they're overly critical about certain aspects of their performance as a human being, understand that is not self-hate. That's not loathing. And you need to understand where hate comes from. Hate is not the opposite of love. And whether you hate yourself or you hate other people, and I don't really ascribe to the word hate, I don't really use it, and I'm only using it now to make a point. But I want to say that love is not the opposite of hate. So if there's any self-hate there, if you hate somebody else, what's really present is frustrated love. You want to love, but there's something in the way, there's some judgment that you're making that's in the way of you expressing unconditional love. And so that inner critique that you actually inherited from somebody else, from outside of you, uh, we could go down that road, but that inner critique is not sourced by hate. It's sourced because you have a grander vision for your life and you don't currently see yourself living in alignment with that vision. So you're frustrated with yourself. How we remedy that is to begin to Picture where you want to end up, and it doesn't matter, and this is, I I got this from a book, the title of a book, I never read the book because it was about advertising, but the title of the book is this, it doesn't matter how good you are, it's how good do you want to be. And so if you can create a vision for yourself and then begin bringing your behavior in alignment with your vision, then you're on your way, you're on the journey. And so your self-hate, your self-frustration is only because you're not moving in the direction of fulfilling on the vision that you have for your life. And this typically is because you have a fixed mindset, meaning that the idea of who you think you are is fixed in time and space. You don't think you can change it. You don't, you think it's a given, something that was given to you by birth or because of your past. When you take on the growth mindset or the mindset of possibility, then you can learn anything, be anything that you want. You just need to align your behavior, need to take one step after another in the direction. And sometimes if you can't take a step, you lean in the direction of where you want to fall. Okay, key number six. And this is by no means at the bottom of my list. It has become an integral aspect of my being. And that is a practice of gratitude. To be grateful for the things in your life and sometimes the things that you didn't even really want in your life, but you recognize the power and impact that they have in allowing you to grow and become something more, something more expansive. 
Far too many people have become a little blasé to the whole concept idea of gratitude. Yeah, yeah, I know you should be thankful, but do you really practice it every day? Is it an integral aspect of how you perceive the world? Do you look for things to be thankful for? You see, that experience of being thankful for, which is actually a state of being, the state of giving and receiving, it is the greatest gift that the divine has made available to us. Because when we can acknowledge and become present to the different aspects of our life that we're thankful for, that we love and appreciate, then we know that we live a blessed life. When we can take the worst circumstances in our life and see the silver lining to it, how it really opens up possibility, because we ask the question, how does this serve me? What does this now make possible? This is the skill of reframing, which is another technique, another skill that I utilize to get control of my vibration. I have a lot more aspects, techniques, strategies than just the seven I'm sharing with you, but these are the heavy hitters. The rest of these things I'll teach in my course, The High Vibe Life. But like I said, these are the heavy hitters. These are the things that really make a difference. But to circle back around and really get to the point of gratitude, the power of gratitude is not necessarily in identifying the low-hanging fruit, the things and aspects and circumstances of your life that anybody could agree on, that of course you could be thankful for that $10,000 falling in your lap. Of course you can be thankful for the sun shining on your face, the pleasant breeze caressing your skin. Of course you can be thankful for the love and friends in your life. Those are easy. But can you be thankful for the rain? Can you be thankful for the winter? Can you be thankful for when times are thin and there's lack? And you can still focus on the positive. You can still focus on the possibility. Because sometimes when we experience lack, it creates a greater intention, a greater future that you envision for yourself. You see, it's taking those seemingly undesirable situations and elevating, appreciating those those aspects into where they're valuable for your life. You see how it impacts your life and is part of the greater whole. It's an integral part of who you are. That's the real power and transformative nature of gratitude. You have to look at the biochemistry that's created from being in gratitude. It's joy, love, appreciation. You can feel it in your chest. It permeates your being. It actually rewires your brain. And we'll go into that in a deeper conversation. But a practice of gratitude is definitely required to manage your vibration because it sets your focus, your reticular activating system. You begin sorting your environment, the things that you love and appreciate. And when your environment is filled with the things that you love and appreciate, you have and have tapped into the abundance of the universe. See, the universe is naturally abundant. But if you cannot recognize the things that you love and appreciate, then you are living in scarcity. You tend to focus on the things you don't want. You tend to focus on the things that don't work. Remember, you are the architect of your reality. You create your experience through your focus of mind. Okay, and now we're here at number seven. Number seven on my all-hit parade list is fun. Having serious fun. You see, most people take themselves too seriously. And I took on the adventure, the challenge of having fun doing something that a lot of people don't have fun doing. 
And that's anything that people don't have fun doing. I can dig a ditch, having fun. You see, a lot of people think fun, just like happiness, is given by the event, the circumstance that you find yourself in. That some things are just naturally not fun. I beg to differ. See, I've taken on the attitude of being unreasonable. I'm unreasonable in my fun. I can have fun for no reason at all because I decide. I get to bring the party. I get to be the host. I get to see these are attitudes and strategies that I've adopted along the way. But you see, when you're the creator of your environment and you understand that people enjoy having fun and when you bring the fun, you bring the party, you know people like that. In fact, if you have a party, if you have an outing, you invite people specifically because they bring the fun. They bring the party. It's not really a party until they show up. See, I wanted to be that person. Why? Not for the attention. I wanted to be that person because of the love it brought, because of the love I could express, because of the love that it made possible, the enjoyment that it made possible for other people. And then also, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to cause ripples in time. And if I could show up with fun in sometimes the seemingly mundane circumstances, if I could bring fun and have serious fun doing important work, then I could be an example. I could be an example of how you run your brain. I could be an example of possibility. And that's part of my mission in the world, that you get your power. Well, my friend, there are seven things that I've put into practice, put in my life over the years in order to gain emotional mastery, to master my vibration. And since this episode started out by me talking about my wife, asking about my new course, The High Vibe Life, Mastering Your Vibration, I have to tell you, if you're invested in making your vibration a priority, you need, and I don't say you need to do something on a regular basis, but you need to put yourself in this program. If you understand that your energy, your vibration determines the expression of your life, determines what you attract from law of attraction, and profoundly impacts every relationship you're in, then you need to make your vibration a priority. And if you don't put yourself in my course, The High Vibe Life, then you better by sure start putting practices in place to make sure that your vibration is your paramount focus each and every day. And if you're wondering whether or not my course delivers... I guarantee it. So if you take one thing away, and you know, it might be meditation, but I really want you to decide that life is a daring adventure or nothing. It needs to be filled with verb and vibration and energy that you're marvelously alive so you can live deliberately and suck the morrow out of life. So until next time, this is your friend and host, urging you to follow your bliss, live your life from inner signals, be inner directed as you engage in the epic adventure.